It's uh, Tuesday, and uh, it's the Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete Callender. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. I appreciate it. And uh, if you want to join the program, it's 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, we're going to talk with the Speaker of the House, I believe, at 2 o'clock, as we normally do on Tuesdays with Tim. Speaker Moore. Um, probably ask him a little bit about the redistricting going on, because they had one of the hearings, one of the public hearings last night, and, um, oh, my gosh, people are mad. Uh, you know, they represent various, uh, you know, left-aligned organizations. They're very upset that they're not getting more seats on the uh, uh, on in the General Assembly, but also uh, at the congressional level, according to the maps that have been proposed at this point. And if you think these are the final maps, I, I, I doubt it, but uh, that's just speculation on my part. But I, I do find it somewhat ironic that Democrats are very, very upset at the drawing of the districts that don't give them what they think they deserve based on their voter registration at the state level and based on vote totals in the last election. And when I point out simply that, hey, you know, Democrats are in charge of the redistricting in Charlotte and Mecklenburg, (laughs) they don't seem to be caring too much about ensuring Republicans get a proportionate share of the representation here. So why am I supposed to care about applying your standard when it weakens your opponents, when you don't apply your standard, when it empowers your opponents? So, no, this is it's kind of along the lines of what we talked about yesterday with the Alec Baldwin situation and uh, Colonel Kurt Schlichter's column at townhall.com, this idea of unilateral disarmament. You know, these are the rules. You guys wrote these rules. You guys have been writing, you know, gerrymandering rules and redistricting rules for decades. This state has, I, it's one of the things I always have to reinforce because there are so many people who are in North Carolina who now pay attention to North Carolina politics and know nothing about what happened prior to seven minutes ago, which is that the Democrats controlled this state for a century and a half. You didn't get a job in state government unless you were a Democrat. Do you understand what that means? You had to donate money to campaign coffers to get jobs. This was a patronage system. This was a spoils system. And unabashedly so. That was the whole point. The Christmas massacre that occurred that's what they called it. It was just a, f- a bunch of people got fired at a Jim Hunt state government. But like that's what that's what Democrats did. People got fired. You only got hired if you were a Democrat, and then they would walk around the office and they'd take up the collection plate for a particular candidate. And we, but and by the way, when you're making those donations at that time, right? When you were making the donations at that time, where were you getting that money from? As a state employee, taxpayers. Right. So you would get money from the taxpayer in the form of a paycheck. You would then have to turn some of that over to help elect a politician. That is a money laundering operation. These were the rules that Democrats set. And they drew maps based on redistricting rules that when Republicans would challenge, it would go to the court system. And then the courts, 
Democrat appointees with divine interpretations and make up rules and then undo those rules when Republicans had to defend maps for the first time in over in over a century and a half. Right. When the Republicans finally got to draw their first maps and they followed the rules that Democrats set, they got sued by Democrats and then they lost in court. Based on rationale by judges, lawyers in robes, right, lawyers with a wardrobe change, and uh, they then ruled against these Republicans for using the very rules that Democrats wrote. (laughs) This is so forgive me. If I'm not the most sympathetic shoulder for you to cry on, okay? Oh, we're not getting seven out of the 14 seats. How many Republican seats did you give the Republicans? So, yeah, no, I'm I'm not sympathetic. Anyway, that's not what I intended to start the program with, but uh, I'm just seeing some of the, I just happened to log into the Twitter machine here, which, by the way, you can interact with me on Twitter. It's always a load of fun. It really is. You want to get a, um, well, I say fun. I shouldn't say that really because it's nothing will destroy your faith in the institution of journalism quite like following a whole bunch of reporters (laughs) at all levels, at all levels. And uh, following some, like, for example, one of them got triggered today by, uh, uh, what, during the uh, the public hearing last night that occurred on the redistricting maps and State Senator Ralph Heiss uh, kept referring to the Democrat Party. And Colin Campbell, the former News and Observer, McClatchy reporter, he's now working for, where did he go to work for? Business North Carolina or something like that? He left. He'd been there for a very long time, but he left. Oh, and... Oh, and uh, Uh, Danielle Battaglia, she's now going up to D.C. She's going to be the McClatchy D.C. Bureau reporter uh, because Brian Murphy, I think is his name, he moved down to North Carolina. So I don't know if there was like a swap that occurred. There was some sort of a trade deal, maybe like a future draft pick or something part of that. I'm not sure. But uh, Colin Campbell, he's a. he got triggered by the fact that Senator Heiss keeps calling it the Democrat Party. And it is always, it, and I said this too, like it, it will never not be funny how many people get triggered by the use of the term the Democrat Party. And by the way, the reason why people call it the Democrat Party is, have you ever seen the way they run their internal elections? It's not democratic. It's not democratic, okay? <laughs> They're not democratic. They're Democrats. That's why they get called the Democrat Party. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So, show of hands, who reads the um, uh, who reads the Washington Post? I do, I do, so you don't have to. I'm a giver. So, uh, the headline on this op-ed the other day and the contents caused quite a commotion on the social media. Jack Schneider, Jennifer Berkshire, both... Uh, co-authored this op-ed headline, Parents Claim They Have the Right to Shape Their Kids' School Curriculum. They don't. (laughs) Uh, This is... Look, sometimes when your opponents are busy beating themselves, it's best just to step aside and let them proceed. Okay? 
I love how quickly we have gone from the it's not being taught to the uh, oh, that that's why you don't get a say in what's being taught, which is totally not being taught. Right. Give me a break, guys. So now parents don't even get a say. They claim to have a right to shape their kids school curriculum, but they don't. They don't have a right to shape their kids school curriculum. OK, here are the highlights of this piece. In their search for issues that will deliver Congress in 2022, conservatives have begun to circle around the cause of, quote unquote, uh, parents' rights. They put that in scare quotes, parents' rights. In search of, uh, sorry, in search for issues that will deliver Congress to them. That's the reason, you see. That's the reason people have been talking about this for the better part of two years. That's the reason, you know, Donald Trump uh, put out the executive order, no more critical race theory in the schools. Right? I love this idea that when conservatives respond to aggressive, progressive acts and policies and the reconstruction and reconstitution of societal norms that come from the left and are pushed via our cultural institutions like the schools – when conservatives then respond, they react that this is now, well, they're just looking for a campaign issue. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what. Let's say they are. So what? So what? Aren't you guys all about the, this is what democracy looks like? Show me what democracy looks like. Isn't that what this is? Isn't this the democratic way? Democrat Party, sorry, Democratic Party. Isn't this what you guys are constantly espousing is no tyranny, no individuals, no authoritarians making these types of decisions? No, no, no. See, as soon as they get a a, a glimpse of Democratic action being applied in a way that uh, subverts their goals, all of a sudden, now it's, you don't have the right to do that. All of a sudden, the tune changes. They go on to say later in their op-ed, given this frenzy, one might reasonably conclude that radicals are out to curtail the established rights that Americans have over the educational sphere. That is a false framing of the issue for the conservatives. And it's not even really, by the way, conservatives. I saw a great, um, a great cartoon that was drawn about this couple of weeks back, um, you've got uh, these stick figures, right? And you've got red, white, and blue stick figures. And on the one side, you got all the, the, the red stick figures, right? They're the Republicans, obviously, which, by the way, just want to register my disapproval of how the Republicans got stuck with the red color and the Democrats got stuck with the blue color. Because that used to be just a thing like media made. You, you know that media made that up? Media made up the colors because they needed a way on election night to highlight the different states and they would change it. Different stations would use different colors. It was no uniformity. And then somewhere along the line, I don't know, maybe it was like journalist or something. I don't know, some Slack chat uh, channel that a bunch of journalists got in. I don't know, but they, they, they somehow or another just like arrived at this conclusion that you will be the red team and you will be the blue team. And the parties were like, okay, I, for the life of me, do not understand why Republicans chose red. But I don't understand why every fast food company has a red logo. There is something to do with red 
and wanting to eat food or something. I don't know. Maybe there's some marketing rationale for it. But um, this is a what these uh, op-ed writers have done is frame it. Gaslighting is what it is. It's a dishonest framing of the issue. They're telling you that the issue is not what you think it is, and you're crazy for thinking it is what you say it is when it's not. One might reasonably conclude that radicals are out to curtail the established rights that Americans have over the educational sphere. That is not what's happening here. Parents are actually reasserting their rights. They are registering their opposition. They are seeking redress with the government, right? They are attempting to influence their local government. And they are registering their disapproval. What they are seeking to curtail is the infusion of leftist ideology in their children's lives because government has this monopoly on your kids' education. They go on to say what's actually radical here is the assertion of parental powers that have never previously existed. Never previously existed? Never? Never. They did previously exist. They predate the creation of the Prussian model of K-12 education. This is not to say that parents should have no influence over how their children are taught. See see what they just did there? The language games that the left plays. This is a perfect example of it. They start off by saying that, oh, you crazy people on the right must think that radicals are out to curtail the established rights that Americans have over the educational sphere. And then they say, look, look, we're not saying that you shouldn't have any influence over how your kids are taught. Well, that's a different thing. That's precisely what the parents are arguing for. They are trying to influence how and what their kids are taught. You don't like what they want their kids to be taught and how they want their kids to be taught. You don't like that. Hey, have you got any coats? Give me your coat. I mean, give me one you want to donate. You got an old coat? That's like new. It's got, I mean, we don't want like a nasty, ratty coat. We want like a like new coat or a new coat. Maybe your kids outgrew the coat from last year, went through the growth spurt, you know. Donate your coat to the 704 Coat Drive, 704coatdrive.com. We are working with Charlotte Mechanical and uh, Salvation Army of uh, Greater Charlotte. So you can go to 704coatdrive.com, check it out for... Uh, the location of the barrels, so you can drop the coats into the barrels, uh, or you can go to the website to make a monetary donation, and it benefits the Salvation Army. So thank you very much, by the way, for helping us to do that. We appreciate it. I cannot, I cannot, uh, I'm gonna, like, I'll have to go out and buy a coat because all of my coats, apparently I packed up, they're all still in boxes from the move. And because we're getting ready to move again, once the house is finished getting built, then... um it's in a neighborhood, so they're just building, like, the whole neighborhood. And so once it's finished, then we can move into it. And so we're, like, three months away. So I just don't want to have to open all the boxes again. Because I think I used it as, like, packing material, you know? Because they're big. They're puffy. They're fluffy. And you could just, you know, pack dishes with them and stuff. <clears throat> so, yeah, looking back, it wasn't a great idea. Okay, fine. But for next time, I now know. So if you, ha- if you have a coat that's not in a box, that's not acting as uh, packing material, and you want to get rid of it, this is a great opportunity to do so. Okay, so back to this op-ed at the Washington Post by Jack Schneider. 
Um, not sure if he's of the pretzel frame uh, fame, but uh, Jennifer Berkshire as well. The uh, the two of these folks write this piece. Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. And I would just like to encourage folks on the left, please keep making these arguments. You're doing fantastic. Seriously, just I'm all in favor of it. You just keep promoting the idea that you know better than parents with their own kids. I think it's an electoral political winner. Just keep doing it. You're doing fantastic. So uh, they say in this piece, common law and case law in the United States have long supported the idea that education should prepare young people to think for themselves, even if that runs counter to the wishes of parents. You see what they're doing there? It's very squirrely. It really is. You have to go through these sentences line by line. And if you read it as if this is the... So there's an old story that a a fellow from the uh, former Soviet Union said that they would only read, you know, Pravda or the official government uh, media accounts, the news stations and the like. They would only listen to these news accounts in order to know what the government told them they wanted them to think. There was never a belief that these things were actually true. And so, and I'm not saying that everything that they've written in this, in this piece is untrue. I am pointing out that's the way you need to read media now. All of it. Because we don't know, right? I mean, we're sitting, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of true, but not entirely true. Common law and case law have long supported the idea that education should prepare young people to think for themselves, even if that runs counter to the wishes of parents. Well, what's embedded in that sentence is an assumption that what is being taught by the kids is automatically the proper and correct thing to teach the kids. And if a parent objects, well, they're just, you know, they just don't want their kid educated. They're just some troglodyte, Luddite, knuckle-dragon, you know, kind of... Trump supporter. Obviously, right? That's obviously what what has to be the case here. Because then the very next sentence, they quote legal scholar Jeff Shulman, who says, quote, this effort may well divide child from parent, not because socialist educators want to indoctrinate children, but because learning to think for oneself is what children do. Well, I guess if socialist educators help guide the kiddies to join La Revolution, well, I guess that's just free thought, right? This is what these folks believe. They Like, the fish doesn't know it's wet here, people. You and I hear this sentence, and it sends all sorts of uh, uh, alarms ringing for us. The effort may well divide child from parent, not because socialist educators want to indoctrinate children, but because thinking or learning to think for oneself is what children do. Learning to think for oneself is what children do. Now, Full disclosure, I do not have kids, but I've been around kids, got a lot of nieces and nephews, and I can tell you, thinking for themselves is not entirely what they do. When they're not eating boogers, um, a lot of times they're just doing what you tell them to do. I mean, you trick them into eating stuff by pretending it's an airplane. Okay, so, like, let's, you know, let's temper our, uh, uh, our assessment here. 
But I also find it interesting that they're saying not because socialist educators want to indoctrinate kids. Like, that he just rejects this idea out of hand. Well, that's not happening. And that's not true. It's, that's just garbage. And anybody who has a kid in a K-12 government school system know that that's not true. Anybody who has access to the Internet knows that that's not true. Because you can see videos of teachers behaving like socialist indoctrinators, right? This is what the videos show. Well, I don't need to go over all of them. You've seen them. Legal insurrection has an entire database of them. They go on to say, when do the interests of parents and children diverge? Generally, it occurs when a parent's desire to inculcate a particular worldview denies the child exposure to other ideas and values that an independent young person might wish to embrace or at least entertain. See, again, this is the framing of parents are trying to shut down all of this information and to to insulate you from the rest of the world so you never get challenged on any of this. And I don't deny that some parents do that. But the pushback is occurring because you've got educators that are doing that very thing to the kids. Right? They are guilty of that which they accuse you. And so often this is the case when it comes to our friends uh, on the hard left. They are guilty of that which they accuse you. To turn over all decisions to parents, then, would risk inhibiting the ability of young people to think independently. Again, no one's saying turn over all decisions to parents. They're simply saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, segregate everybody by race. Maybe we shouldn't be uh, telling kids that the color of their skin dictates certain characteristics about them, like ethical characteristics about them. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we shouldn't be telling people that the only reason... They are where they are is because of the color of their skin and telling other kids that they will never be able to get ahead because of the color of their skin or their gender, right? That they are, they're actively being oppressed by somebody because of immutable characteristics. You know what that does to somebody? Now, maybe for folks on the left who are these like, you know, uh, uh, aged out hippies, they're like, you know, oh, well, uh, and look, I say that with great respect for hippies, but like, I, you know, honestly, like maybe they're just like of this opinion that, uh, well, this will inspire them to get tough and mm, rise above it, you know? Yeah, but it's also incredibly demoralizing to a great many other people who will just give up. That's not good. You want to inspire people. You want to inspire people to be whatever they want to be. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color skin they have or what gender they are. It doesn't matter. You can be anything you want to be. Isn't that the American dream? And if that doesn't unite us, what is all of this for? Are you even allowed to play this song anymore? Probably not. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Reading through this Washington Post op-ed, it's got everybody all a Twitter on the social media. Uh, parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. That's the headline of this piece by two people it took to uh, come up with this brilliance. Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire. And uh, I do find it sort of um, interesting, first off, that they deny the rise of wokeism. Right, because I know if you call it critical race theory, 
then you get the response from the morons who don't know actually what critical race theory is or critical legal studies or critical theories or or neo-Marxism or Antonio Gramsci in the prison papers. Like, they don't know any of that. They don't know Kimberly Crenshaw. They don't know Derek Bell. They don't know any of these people. They don't know any of these philosophies. Nothing. None of the history. But they will tell me, I don't know what critical race theory is. They will say that to me. When I say critical race theory, as a catch-all label for all of the dumbassery that falls underneath that umbrella, like the anti-racism ideology, the white fragility uh, ideology from Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, right? The diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, all of this stuff that falls under that umbrella of intersectionality, which actually came from Kimberly Crenshaw out of Harvard, out of the critical race theory. This is where it came from. And you don't have to believe me, by the way, on this stuff. You should listen to Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw. Is critical race theory currently being taught in K-12 schools? And here is her answer. The creator of the intersectionality component here, this train of thought out of the critical race theory umbrella, right? This train of thought that all, all of these things and all of these identities intersect making everybody allies against basically white straight men, I think. Um, So critical race theory, this is her answer. Critical race theory originated in law schools, but over time, professional educators and activists in a host of settings, K-12 teachers, DEI advocates, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI advocates, racial justice and democracy activists, among others, Applied CRT to help recognize and eliminate systemic racism. And that's a good thing because we must support our teachers' freedom to teach the truth about our accurate history. That's what Kimberly Crenshaw says. This is not me saying it. This is Kimberly Crenshaw. So, pound sand, gaslighters. Because these two in their op-ed, they say that the sudden push for parental rights then isn't a response to substantive changes in education law. It's a political tactic. See, denying the rise of these efforts in the institutions of K-12 education, they have to deny that these things are occurring. Because there isn't really a legitimate argument for them. This is why they argue with these ridiculous responses like, we're just trying to teach real history. Why don't you want us to teach real history? Nobody is saying don't teach real history. The people who view all Republicans as Nazis have some thoughts also on political paranoia. Yeah. Um, They say that the paranoid style of politics is particularly useful as a mechanism for organizing opposition. Remember, they are guilty of that which they accuse you. The Republicans employing it right now have two particular targets in mind. The first is the public education system, which hardliners have long sought to undermine. Hardliners. Hard, hardliner, hardliner what? Conservatives? Ronald Reagan won in the greatest landslide victory ever. And he wanted to abolish the Department of Education. Now, he did not, unfortunately. But that's what he said he wanted to do. And he won by a lot, multiple times. So... Is he a hardliner and everybody voted for him hardliners? Who? What's the hard line here? 
Because even I, who want to see the K-12 model, government-run model, blown up, dismantled, even I say there should be sort of a safety net of public schools that exist that could take vouchers. I have no problem with that. A voucherized system doesn't uh, forbid a public sector uh, example. You can have public sector schools. You can run public sector schools if you would like, but they have to compete. See, and that's really, this. what this comes down to is a performance-based model. This is a metric by which we can ascertain whether or not somebody is good at what they do. And that's really what a lot of the folks in K-12 government education, this is what they're resisting. They don't like performance-based, merit-based pay. When you talk about it for teachers, North Carolina tried to implement this and they got sued. They got sued by Democrats. They got harangued by the media, right? How dare you try to judge teachers by some sort of a metric? Oh, we're just incapable of assessing someone's progress. Like, well, then you might not want to be a teacher because that's kind of your jam. That's what you got to do, right? You guys assess the kids' progress. But there, we are to believe that they're just, there's no way to measure whether someone is a good or a bad teacher. They just can't figure it out, folks. They just can't figure it out. So, because they can't figure it out, which I don't believe, by the way, um, we just have to pay everybody the same amount of money. Oh, well. Man, if only we could figure out how to assess people for uh, excellence. But we can't. So you're going to have to pay the really crappy teachers the same amount of money as you pay the really great ones. Because that's not demoralizing to the great ones at all. And it doesn't mask the fact that your kid just got stuck in a classroom with a really crappy teacher. That's really what this is about. That's what a voucherized system would act as. This is what it would highlight for parents who actually give a rip about their kid's education. It gives them some heuristic. It gives them an idea of whether or not a school or a teacher is good or bad. And in my conversations with various people in the education field over the years, they will say, well, but parents don't know. It's a very uh, paternalistic kind of view of parents, by the way, which is, yes, ironic, but they look down at parents. They say, well, the parents don't know what's a good school. They just think that if they send their kids to this school with a fancy name or a high price tag, that they're getting a better education and they're not. And here's the thing, though. Who cares? Who the hell made you their parent? If the parent thinks that this is the best thing for their kid, I don't know. I think we should just let the parent decide. And that's really the rub here, too. They don't want to let parents decide what's best for their own kids because they know what's best for your kid. All right, we'll get into more uh, up next. Stick around.